Here's your host, Alex Garrett. Well, it's Friday, and uh, I'm going to put the Fanatics Friday uh, mantra away for a minute because I've got a really a friend of this podcast and a friend in life. Uh, you know, I work with him on AM 970 The Answer with Eye on Real Estate, and uh, he's no stranger to this podcast either. Steve Ebert, how are you, sir? Casting Casting LLP, our legal expert and housing as well. How are you since we last talked? Uh, do, doing great, Alex. Glad to be back and glad to contribute. Uh, things are going well. It's it's interesting times, you know, in in the world of real estate. Uh, a lot going on, and um, you know, glad we can connect and, and really help inform our listeners about it. Okay, so this is Memorial Day weekend, and we were just talking about how we can help veterans with some information because we always talk about the veteran housing crisis, but. It seems you've got a brighter picture for veterans looking for a home, uh, you know, this Memorial Day weekend and, and even this summer, perhaps. Absolutely. You know, May is a time, you know, all of a sudden the weather's warming up, spring is in the air, the pools are open and people are outdoors. And all of a sudden they're thinking more about what, what's my story with my housing situation? What should I be considering? And and there's a lot to consider right now. And we should definitely touch on it on What's happening with the stock market and cryptocurrencies and interest rates and are things more negotiable or less negotiable? But you know, specifically, take your point. You know, as we as we honor um, our, our veterans, um, you know, this weekend we think about them and the sacrifices they've done for us and the country. Uh, are there any special programs to help them out? And there really is a great program out there. You know, one of the challenges that I see for first-time home buyers is that they're able to cover the monthly payment of a purchase versus a rental, but it's very hard to get the down payment together. And there's a great program for veterans where you can put little and really um, close to no money down to buy a home. There are some programs out there for veterans that they will allow 100% financing of the purchase price. So it's really just you know some closing cost expenses. And even that sometimes you can, to a degree, roll them in. So it's a wonderful way to help our veterans come back, you know, join the community as and as a homeowner and have and build up equity instead of renting. Uh, and it's a great time of year to think about that. How come the media doesn't talk about that? I feel like they only propagate the whole housing crisis for veterans and homeless veterans, but they don't offer a plan for them, do they? Well, you know, it's it sometimes like the good news stories aren't that interesting to some folks. Um, and, you know, I, I think so many times when you hear about things being discussed for veterans, you know, maybe they're talking about, you know, what it's like coming back from service abroad or maybe some questions in, in the VA healthcare system or things like that. But this is a wonderful program that's out there. And it's one of those really nuts and bolts kind of program that really can truly help out um, uh, soldiers and veterans, and it can truly also help out communities. Because again, so many times we see, um, you know, in the, in the middle income communities that are really strong, stable communities that are great, it's very tough for people to make that rental to ownership transition. And, you know, it's interesting, not in the veterans context, we're seeing this in parts around the country. We're seeing some very large financial institutions, um, investment firms like BlackRock, for example, 
buying up portfolios of single-family homes in certain parts of the country where neighborhoods that might be home ownership for primary residents are being are really turned into rentals. So this is a really important program. You know, I, I don't want to sound too cliche, but this is really the heart of the American dream. Well, Own, owning your own home. How how yeah. do you help veterans? And how I, I don't know if you're talking on behalf of Casting and Casting, but is there sort of a partnership with any veterans organization to get this done for veterans? Well, one, we're familiar with the program, so for anyone that we're representing, we can get them in touch with the right people who do the loans for them to really help it make a reality. You know, we're proud that we have employees who are veterans um, at the firm, um, which is great, and, and so they also understand what it's like, you know, economically and situationally, and so we definitely know how to connect them to the right resources to make it a success to make that home purchase. Very cool, very cool. All right, I guess veteran or non-veteran, um, they're feeling, is it possible they're going to feel this quarter interest rate? Because I know that's been a big conversation in the housing market. Have we seen an effect of this rate uh, rate hike yet? So I definitely think it's going to affect some sectors of the market, and it's going to affect some parts of the country more than others. I think in the Northeast, it's going to have overall less of an impact than let's say out in the midwest and parts of the south and part of it is the high cost of um lending and and part of the part of the issue of the high cost of property excuse me and also the fact that particularly in new york city we have a very international um purchase base and so we do see some people who are disproportionately all cash buyers so they're not interest rate sensitive um, we also do see people maybe being relocated for work. So I think in that crowd, it's not going to have much of a change. Um, and also you have a little bit of a lead time. Some people who've signed new construction contracts, let's say during the pandemic, that are still going to take another year or so to build. So you have that timing before you see a change over there. But where you, you're going to have concern is maybe areas where the market is growing and where you're seeing really entry-level first-time home buyers, because they're much more numerically sensitive, and they're much more doing that comparison, rent to own, or this neighborhood versus that neighborhood. So you got to be very, very careful. Now, this is where, you know, if you're one of those homeowners that are trying to maybe sell that first home that you lived in, and you're trying to climb up that ladder to maybe a bigger home. Um, a more permanent home as opposed to a starter home, you know, there's some questions there to think about. Is it now a good time to sell? What should I do? Because I could get hit from both sides, right? I could have my first time home buyers having a tougher time buying, but if I wait longer, interest rates are going up. I had a lower rate mortgage, right? Now I'm going to buy a more expensive home and have a higher interest rate. And so some people are feeling a little bit of a squeeze and maybe say, look, I need to act now. Now, the key thing to look at is how to really make a deal with a buyer. Mm. Right, Alex? So here's the question you have to ask if you're someone in that situation. What does that buyer need to be attracted to buy my home and make a deal possible? And one of the things that I want people to think about is it's not just about price, it's about monthly payment. And the question is, are there ways in which you can help that first-time home buyer 
swallow that closing and monthly payment to start with to get comfortable and do the transaction. And I want to point to two techniques, and there are others that we do on deals, but I'm going to throw two techniques out there that people could consider to really help them sell that home and make that first-time home buyer um, successfully close. Number one, there's a concept known as points. And a point is just equal to 1% of your loan amount. So if you're borrowing $200,000, one point would be $2,000. Now, what happens is if you pay a point, they will reduce your mortgage interest rate, which will reduce your monthly payment. So if you do the math, Alex, to reduce your monthly payment, it costs much less to buy down the mortgage rate than to reduce the sales price. So what I'd recommend to a client is, look, if someone's having trouble buying your half a million dollar home and they're just having trouble with that payment, instead of doing a major price reduction of $30,000, instead, give them a credit for a couple of thousand and say, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy down your mortgage rate to have a lower monthly payment. Well, I'll have to listen back to that and, and, and fully digest it, but I feel like those in the market listening right now would understand exactly what you're saying and, and maybe get some education out of that uh, little tip there. Yeah, I mean, hopefully that can help them make that deal. And the next thing that happens is, again, swallowing some of those closing costs. There's a lot of upfront costs. Alex, if you're buying a home, you got to maybe prepay the homeowner's insurance for the first year. That could be a couple of thousand and more. Maybe you have to pay three, four, five months of property taxes up front. Well, one of the things that also see is successful is that the seller give them a closing cost credit, maybe say, here's what I'm going to do. If you buy this house and you close on time, I'll pay the first three months of your property taxes. So all of a sudden, it makes it easier for that buyer not to have as much out of pocket so they feel more comfortable having a little bit in reserve in case there's a repair or something like that. So that's another technique to really get comfort and bridge the gap. So it would almost and make them are, more eager to buy is what you're saying. Absolutely. You can, you know, the key question you got to when you're doing any deal is what's motivating the other party? Do they want to close now because their lease is up? Or maybe they have a school-aged kid for the first time going to kindergarten and they want to make sure they're in that house before September and the school year starts. It could be a whole variety of reasons. And the key thing is you got to say, look, let me see what motivates them, and let me give some sort of incentive that aligns with that. And too much time is spent on the discussion of it's all about the sales price. Sure, as a seller, you want to get every penny you can in a sales price. As a buyer, you want to get the purchase price as low as possible. But there's more to that. There's time. There's timing of money. There's what your monthly payments are going to be. Repairs. There's a whole list of items. And if you can get in tune and understand what motivates them, you could really have greater success in selling your property faster and for a better price. Uh, would you say some first-time buyers are just so eager to do it they don't even think of this either on the buying side? Well, part of it is creativity, okay. right? You're, and you're absolutely right. Sometimes they're they're sort of focused on the same thing and saying, well, this is the price per square foot. Well, that's the listing. And they're falling into a trap of really just having a two-dimensional negotiation. And instead, they need to look a little further, right? 
I'll give you an example of one client who's buying a home, and the seller had two issues. One, they had a very narrow window when they wanted to close. They needed a few months to be ready, but once they were ready, they wanted to close quickly. And that's number one. Okay. The second issue, while the totality wasn't very expensive, they did have a number of repairs that needed to be done. So the right buyer went in there and said, look, I can give you flexibility on time. Let's tweak the price, and I'll fix up all these issues. Don't worry about it. And that is what that seller needed. They couldn't psychologically handle being in a tight corner for closing and having to deal with the repairs given their situation. And because the buyer well, that's offered a great them compromise, the, actually. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's just finding what motivates the other side. And it's a matter of just taking the time and teasing out that information and then designing a contract accordingly. Okay. Well, I, I want to get to the seller for a minute because you just talked about selling your first home. And I, I don't know. I feel like everybody romanticizes the retirement sell, like sell the house and retire. But no one talks about those middle phases, right, Stephen? You know, it's it's absolutely, it's like, wait a minute, you know, it's not like you just get your first job, you're on it for six months and say, great, when's my retirement party? There's there's hopefully many decades in between. And the same thing with the house. Exactly right. You know, they're thinking about the beginning and the end game, but there's a whole lot of that middle game. And you really need to think ahead and see where the town is going. Um, obviously making some assumptions, but if, if you're having a family and kids, what the school district is going to be like, even, you know, I, I was even having a conversation with their family that lives in my town. They were, were talking about it and they said, Oh, we love our house, but not only do we love your house, but we love your street better than our street. We didn't realize your street had a certain vibe that our street didn't have. So it's that really level of detail, like get in there and see what it's like at different times of day. You know, is what's the traffic like? What's the noise like? And you know what? If you care about it, is it the kind of street where you see kids running around the street playing with each other? Or is it the kind of thing where they see you walking and they turn their back on you? You know, you need to find out, you know, it's not just a house you want to have a home. It's not just an address you want to have a neighborhood. And those are a lot of the important details that have a lot of value to it. Uh, and you got to look deep. All right, so it, it, it all sounds great. You don't you want to have a neighborhood, but let's say I don't know how much convincing does one need to go into a neighborhood? Meaning, New York City right now, not a very good city. How much convincing is there now to have people come back? I feel like they're trying to pull teeth to have people come back right now in this uh, crime. I wouldn't say infested, but crime-ridden uh, communities we have right now. You know, it's definitely an issue, and anyone who, you know, is not taking that seriously and taking it head on is deluding themselves. That being said, things are never as bad as they seem, and I think they're never as good as they seem. Right now, there are issues. I believe they are very, very fixable. The question is, is there the willpower at the top to go ahead and do that? And what we're seeing is the bubbling of um, – of people who are upset and word is getting out there um, and look you know unfortunately I mean look what happened in the last couple of days you know a great tragedy in Uvalde Texas you know it, it can you know it, it can happen anywhere um, 
and and it's a testament to how many people live in New York. You know, when you think about it, way of how well it operates as a general way. You know, I think the issue is one setting expectations. You know, you need to have the political will. You need to also really have the enforcement of the law, and that is something that has changed over the years. But you know, I remember growing up. You know, before Bloomberg, before Giuliani, back in the Dinkins era, if you even look back historically back during Lindsay and other times, you know, people say, oh, New York City is not governable. It's impossible to manage. It's not true. It can be managed. There is an incredible amount of development going on still. I mean, walk past Grand Central and look at that one Vanderbilt Tower. It's absolutely stunning. Oh, it's amazing. Have you been to the summit yet, the observatory? I haven't made it to the summit. I've been in the lobby. I haven't made it to the top, but it looks absolutely stunning. Oh, and that one um, block, you know, it used to be a grunge block uh, outside Grand Central. The, the whole uh, street was all gray, and it just looked bad. Now they've had a nice plaza. Kind of ups the value of the whole area now, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and look, it takes time. I mean, look, sometimes everybody makes an assumption that things go in a straight line in an upwards direction. And sometimes it's like a roller coaster. Sometimes you do need a little bit of a down to go back up. You need to do a little bit of a loop, and then before you go straight ahead. Um, And I think we're experiencing some of that. But, you know, it's also part of the amazing creative destruction that happens, too, right? Mm -hmm. You don't always – on the one hand, you never want to see an empty storefront. But if you don't have that empty storefront, you're never going to get that new tenant. And so I think New York is going through that phase right now. And I think the key thing is, you know, for New Yorkers to do what we do best, have high standards and be demanding. And we express ourselves and let our political class know, law enforcement, district attorney saying, this is what we expect and you need to perform. And I think right now we do have a fixable issue. I, I think we have a performance issue and um, those officials need to really up their game, shall I say. All right. I want to make a note. I'm not getting paid to say this, but you definitely have to check out Steve on uh, Saturday mornings with uh, Ion Real Estate because, he, uh, Steve Ever, you've got a wealth of knowledge. And uh, I wanted to touch on this for a quick second. The thing about the finding the great neighborhood and, and the convincing, as someone with legal background and, and as a lawyer, can you convince someone to buy or dissuade someone to buy? Like, what is the real role for you, and does your heart ever break that they're going into something that may not work for them? So I always tell this to clients, my job is to give you my best counseling, my best advice that I can give. You will get my honest opinion on things, and it may not be the same one that you have. I might be more optimistic. I might be more pessimistic. And I said, and then at the same time, as long as what you want me to do is legal and ethical and proper, if you overrule me, then so be it. I, I, I get it done for you. Um, you know, every different person has their own different risk profile, right? Some people are the person to say, that's the new emerging neighborhood. I want to be there, right? Think about it this way, right? Parts of Brooklyn go back 25 years ago. And if somebody said, look at all the multi-million dollar condominiums going in there, you'd have some who said, I can see the vision, some that's not going to happen, right? And, and it can go the other way too. So 
I think part of my job is to, one, get effective information out there, right? That's the first thing. We live in a world with information overload. There's a lot on the Internet. Some of that information is relevant and accurate, and some of it is completely um, not helpful. Part of my job is to get the right information, dissect it, filter it, and put it in a way for the client that can help them make that decision. The other thing is what might motivate me as a person could be very different than the client. And so understanding and respecting that and making sure you know, that's addressed accordingly. So you know, as a lawyer for someone, my job is to advocate for them. It's not to convince them to buy or to sell or to not buy or to not sell. Rather, it's a matter of saying, are we looking at all the factors? Are you getting the right advice? Is it done in a timely way? And, you know, it's interesting. There's a little bit of a paradox, right? On the one hand, as a transactional attorney, and, and you, know, you know, Alex, it's funny. Most people say, oh, to be a good lawyer, you have to like to argue, hmm. right? Maybe, maybe you've heard that. And I, I would take great issue with that. As an attorney, you really need to be able to communicate with one another and convince and get along. And so we're sort of in this in-between spot where we're dealing with the bankers, the real estate brokers, the clients, right? And we want to make sure everyone gets along. And But we also need to be the one to work quickly to get the deal done if needed, but also be the one to raise our hand and say, stop, there's a problem here. And so it's tough. There's a little bit of a tug of war going on. And I don't know, do you feel that people who just think of the awe, awesomeness of buying their first house, do they not think of the legality of it? Same with those who sell their first house. Let's, let's have it on both sides of the equation there. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard for someone to think of all the issues, all the costs, all the concerns before they've really gone through it. And... Um, you know, but let me let, let me just say this. If you invest in the long term, in most cases, particularly in New York, it's it's hard to lose, right? Because if you think about it, you always should look at it through the following lens. What's my next best alternative? If I didn't buy that property, what would I be doing? I would be paying rent. So even if, let's say, you bought a property, and let's say eh, it didn't really appreciate much, and you lived in there for five years, and then you sold it, and you sort of broke even on it. But wait a minute. You had five years while you had a carry cost, you had tax deductions, mm. versus five years of paying rent that has no tax or economic value whatsoever. So keep that in mind when really trying to analyze it. You really need to make sure you have the right lens when you're analyzing something. You know, now... When it comes to trying to figure out sort of the legal process, you know, a lot of clients that we work with, while some might be very sophisticated doing development transactions, large commercial deals, we work with plenty of first-time home buyers too. And, you know, one of the first things is, and I talk about to clients, is what do you expect out of an attorney? Because many of them have never hired an attorney or really never even hired any professional. Sure, they've gone to a doctor for a visit or a dentist for a cleaning, but they haven't really hired a professional with a relationship in a meaningful way. And so part of it is getting on the same page of what our role is and what we do. Um, and then what happens is having them decide, 
do they want a really close relationship where we're really there and they lean heavily on us and we interact a lot? And sometimes the client is very distant. Mm. Some sellers I have, look, I'm moving to California in, in two weeks. Here's Do a power of attorney. <laughs> get it done for me, and I can't wait to get the check in the mail. <laughs> right? So you get a whole range of different types of people as well. Well, that's interesting. And by the way, as we're thinking about this, I can't help but think that when we all see on Facebook, oh, our first home, or we got our new house, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And your your voice here is bringing some let's say, depth to those pictures? Well, you know, it's true. I mean, let's be honest about social media. For some reason, everyone posts the perfect entree from dinner and the perfect photo on the beach. I don't know about you, but I've gone on vacation. It actually does rain sometimes. <laughs> and I've gone to a restaurant, and sometimes, you know, they burn the food, and, <laughs> and you're waiting a while. And, and the same thing with the house. You know, you you can capture it in the right light, but you really got to look in those corners and everything. You're exactly right. There, there's definitely more depth uh, than what you see on social media. Wow. As I'm talking, uh, four years ago, my grandmother in June of 18 passed away, and selling the house was very painful. So there's that also about, you know, when the elders, when the, when the matriarchs, the patriarchs, pass away and the house has to be sold there's so many elements that we don't talk about in society we you know there, there's a lot over there and you know it also hopefully releases a lot of great memories and stuff yeah. that you discover that were sort of tucked away in the corners or in boxes and it brings back those memories and you know you, you see the level of detail that's put into making that house a home and um you know, I, I can definitely understand that. And when you, when you have to deal with an estate sale, you want to make sure you have people that are listening and are thinking about things. So, you know, you might have someone who just says, look, I might have financial pressure, right? You know, you might have your own costs of, of running your own household and life. And all of a sudden now, you know, with that family member no longer with you, um, you have the cost of upkeeping that property. So it could be a big burden, and you're trying to rush things out because it's economic. But at the same time, don't forget, oh, what about that chandelier? Mm. What about these items that are there? And so it's very important that you have the right kind of professional that says, I know you're in a rush to do this. I know this is one of a million things you have to do, which you had to do beforehand. But let's take that moment in time and be thoughtful and make sure that – it's These items right. are taken care of because you'll, you'll regret it later. Well, and also the inheritance wishes and all that, which we uh, I don't really want to get into that because that's a big conversation. But I do want to ask you because some people I know are millennials and the, some people are dealing with lease issues. Do I renew? Someone says they renew, then they're going to back out. I don't know. I'm finding, even as I'm apartment hunting, the leasing story is coming out of the woodworks and I'm hearing about some of the horror stories. So I don't know if you can dip into that. What's the best tip to renew a lease? Because that's problematic for some people, it seems like, roommates and such. You know, it's been very tough, and it's been a very, very strong market for landlords. And what's interesting is before even getting into, you know, I want to broaden your question for a second, and then we'll get into how to deal with roommates and so forth. You know, rents have gone back up, you know, quite a bit. There was a dip during COVID, and now they've come back. And, you know, because of it, there is a talk in Albany of having this good cause eviction law in place. 
Um, and if I may say, I'll give my opinion before I explain why. I think it's a terrible idea. Um, you know, what they are doing is the stuff that they're promoting it on, and other states like New Jersey have had elements of this law, but they want to take it to a whole other level. So one thing they're putting in there, which is okay, um, is that as long as the tenant's been a good tenant and they pay their rent on time and no damage and no problems, the landlord has to at least offer them the ability to um, renew their lease. That There's a law like that in New Jersey right now. But what they want to do is go a step further. They want to take private property and say the landlord is limited as to the percent increase that they can force on the next lease. And I have a very strong issue with that. This is private property. When people bought something, they should know the rules. A lot of landlords are small landlords. They're not everyone is a big, wealthy developer that owns thousands and thousands of apartments or homes. Um, that's not how it works. And people should have the right to get the benefit of their investment. Somebody bought a home, and the law is that it's private home ownership and they can go ahead and rent it as they please, then that's what should occur. And, you know, what we've always found in the market is that when government gets involved and overregulates and interferes, we still have a housing crisis. I mean, it's amazing to think about with all the subsidies and programs out there, we always have an affordable housing crisis. So, you know, going down that road and continuing to double down on that is not going to really solve the problem. What you are going to do is disincentivize landlords from being in that business and maintaining property. And we saw that in the city in the 1970s. Um, and that's not something that we want to replicate. Um, when it comes to roommates, you got to be very careful because, number one, you need to know who your roommate is. And I don't mean is this the kind of person that cleans up their coffee mug and leave it in the sink or not. I'm talking about is this someone who is present and financially dependable? Because if you put your name on that lease, you're all in on it, right? So let's say, Alex, let's say you have a friend, sure. and we'll call him Joe. And let's say you and Joe decide to say, hey, hey, buddy, let's let's go rent a place together. You know, we can get even a better place and get a better deal. You both sign the lease. And let's say Joe says, I'm real sorry, but work relocated me, and now I'm going to be in Chicago. Sorry, wow. I got to go. You're screwed. You're going to be stuck with that. You're going to be stuck. It's not like you go to the landlord and say, I know it's 5000 a month. Here's my 2500 each month. They're going to say, no, 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 thanks for the 2500 Where is the other half? And the fact that Joe moves out, that, that's, that's your problem. And so it can affect your credit, and you can be sued. So you definitely want to know who your roommate's going to be and make sure that protections are in place. That, that is by far the most important thing, the money question, in my opinion, because you want to keep your credit. You don't want to end up in court, and this could impact a future rental or a purchase down the road. Um, one last thing I know you want to get to for the longest time is Rebney is being challenged by Compass. First of all, is that lawsuit still going? And as a lawyer, I know you're very interested in that. So maybe give people who aren't familiar with the lawsuit, what, uh, tell us what's going on with that. 
Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating lawsuit. And, and Rebney, the Real Estate Board of New York, and Compass is a major brokerage. There was a real question as to what happens when real estate agents move and really who controls the relationship. And it, it's, it's, it's an interesting business. I understand why we are where we are, but it, this case gets to the heart of where the relationship between the client and the professional stand, right? When you're, when you're thinking of buying or selling a property, you're thinking of working with that agent, mm-hmm. right? This is the person who's taking me open house to open house. This is the person that's putting together the marketing strategy and the pricing for my property. I'm working with that person. But legally, it's a different story. If you look closely and you're going to be signing an exclusive to sell your property, while the agent does sign, the manager or some executive at the brokerage will sign that agreement. If you look at when your commission's being paid to your agent, the check is not written to that person. It's written to the brokerage. And then the brokerage gives whatever portion of that to the agent as compensation. In fact, it's illegal to have it paid directly to the agent. It has to be paid to the broker, and then it gets distributed to their agent that's at the firm. So now the question is, what happens when your agent leaves their brokerage, Mm. and you all of a sudden signed an engagement and you've signed an engagement, let's say, I hired, and I'll pick you know, a different company, ABC Realty. Even though you wanted that certain agent, your agreement's with ABC Realty. And let's say you're stuck with them for six months. And now your agent says, I'm really sorry, I'm moving to XYZ Realty. And you say, but I want you to work on it. And ABC Realty says, wait a minute. Why are we giving up, you know, a $30,000 commission? We want to keep that money and keep that business. And the and you say, no, 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 I want to go with the agent because that agent's been doing the work and I really want them, not some random other person you're going to put on it. This is the heart of the case. Is the relationship with the brokerage or with the agent? And does the consumer have any choice? Has the contract been broken. That's what's being discussed right now. So right now, if you notice, I'm framing it on that client and agent relationship. Now, there are other elements to consider. Okay. On the one hand, again, you want to have that one-to-one relationship. On the other hand, the brokerage might say, wait a minute, we're investing a lot of money. Who do you think paid for the photographer that took the photos? Who do you think built the website that has the platform which for marketing your property. Who do you think paid for the signs? The brokerage. We put money out. And the way in which the real estate industry worked, there's no retainer. There's no hourly rate. They basically say, here's our commission percentage. And if we can sell it within this time period, we make our percent. If we can't, try to renew. Or if you don't renew, that's it. They're taking also, an, They're making an investment. No way an honest agent is out there saying, "Well, this is really the, uh, <laughs> this is really the uh, firm I used to work with." Project. I mean, I- is there that kind of honesty, or do you find that not to be the case? 
If you can clarify that a little bit more. Like, please. let's say the agent frames it the way you did. Is that rare that they frame it to way to say, well, you know, it's really the agency that did this, not the I just worked. Sure. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. They'll they'll mention some of that because when you think about it, the agent when they're selling, they're they're selling themselves and they're selling their firm at the same time. Right? They're gonna say, Look at the technology we have, right? Our our contact resource database. Look at the fact that maybe our brokerage has two hundred offices around America or one thousand offices around the world. Right? So they're they're kind of selling both. They're selling themselves and they're selling the resources of their organization. But you know, a good agent, you know, they are they are salespeople. They're going to explain why they made the move, right? They're going to say, Alex, you know, before I was at company number one, and we had the best international global network. I'm moving to company number two because in your case, you're selling a one-bedroom apartment in this neighborhood. And if you look in the neighborhood, there are no international buyers. So company number two, while it's less international, it's more local. And that's who you really need. So my moving, it, it helps you better, right? This is part of the sales pitch that, that you're going to get. But, you know, you've had both the company and the individual make an investment in you. And so that's really the, the heart of the debate and the fight is that where is the legal relationship, where is the financial investment, and what, is, how do, what and how does the client feel um, of their connection? And you wrap this all up in the fact that the agent and the brokerage are all licensed organizations governed by, in New York State at least, by the Department of State, and they have to follow their sets of ethical rules. So I think this is a very interesting case I think it's also something for people to think about. And the last point, which I should have also mentioned earlier, is remember, these rules have been around for really decades, in some cases over a century. Think about how the economy worked differently, right? We have a little bit much more of a mobile worker and more of a freelancer mentality now than we did decades ago. And these laws really came into effect when people were very sticky with their organization, they started a company and unless there was a specific reason, they didn't leave. It didn't really put into the idea that there are sub teams and new brokerages and relationships changing. So, you know, it's definitely, I think, regardless of the outcome of going the- after Remney, because they found that Remney was pra- had some practices where they were sort of their agents were taking their clients. Is that is that what happened? Well, what's, in, what's interesting is there's a couple of cases going around the country and really trying to think about um, monopolies. And so let me, let me also bring that in. It's a totally different concept. So you have not so much in Manhattan, but in other parts of the country, you have what we call the MLS, the Multiple Listing Service. And that is a bit of a localized monopoly. Um, but there are rules within that service to address those issues. So in Manhattan, you don't quite exactly have an MLS system. Rebney sort of has a modified MLS system that's out there, and that keeps on, it's an evolving conversation. And with Compass, though, they've grown tremendously. 
right? This is a company where 10 years ago didn't really exist. And then now um, is a very large uh, force in the market, both in New York and in many markets around the country. And, and then they've grown tremendously. And the only way to grow at that rate and speed is if you are acquiring well-respected agents from your competitors, mm. right? You don't have, you can't grow that fast by recruiting junior agents and really giving them the chance to develop. That's obviously part of their, their roster of agents, but you couldn't build new offices without having established people anchoring those offices. So, from Compass's point of view, it's a very interesting situation because today, at this point in time, they want to argue that the relationship is more age-driven with the client because they're recruiting agents to their firm. It's a very curious thing. I wonder if roles are reversed, right? You know, it's like, it's like political campaigns. Sure. You know, you have the incumbent who says, Vote for somebody who's experienced and knows what's going on. Then you have the new upstart candidate who says, oh, they're an entrenched politician, right? They don't care. They're an insider. But then all of a sudden, when that, that new person gets elected, five years in the future where they're the insider, they're going to say, vote for the veteran yep. with the experience. And then there's so, Joe <laughs> Biden. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Well, I don't know if you want him to be a realtor. <laughs> uh, oh, no, no, no. Hey, Steve, I really love this, and I love that we really got to depth on a lot of stuff, but please keep us posted on this because I'm intrigued because the establishment is being challenged in New York. I mean, Rebney's longstanding, and you've got Compass, who's scrappy and wants fairness. It's going to be a very interesting case seeing that shapes up. Please update on that uh, when, when we get one. Definitely. It's definitely a case to watch. And regardless of the decision, it will really be, you know, a, a thoughtful matter of how companies are run in the area. And will it help bring people back to New York real estate wise? Is this a is this a changing like, you know, a, a thing that could help the city or, or what? You know, I look at it this way. You know, people say, you know, oh, my goodness, you have people moving out. You got to remember something. Whenever anybody sells a property somebody else is buying it. Mm -hmm. And and that's a very important point. Sure. It doesn't mean that you have some population trends and it would be, you know, misleading to say there are no issues. I think we need to get our governmental spending under control. We need to, you know, get our taxation under control. We need to really think about some of regulations so it can be a little bit friendlier and easier for startups and so forth. Um, but that being said, there, there is a lot of innovation going on. You're seeing major companies invest. You know, look at the growth of Google um, in Manhattan. That's just one example. Um, so there's a lot to also be excited about. And I remember about two weeks before the lockdown really started to go into effect, we had um, a luncheon uh, meeting with one of the economists um, for uh, New York City Commerce. And one of the, f I found the most interesting slides was how much we've diversified our economy. You know, before the last really economic down cycle, we were incredibly dependent on Wall Street jobs. Now, Wall Street jobs are still very important, but we've really done, and credit to New York City, 
diversified the economic base and we're not as one industry dependent, which is absolutely critical for employment and growth. Um, what we need to do is get the message out there that there is still lots of opportunity, that there is many ways to do very, very well, and um, and, and, and it's an amazing city, and, and you're seeing a lot of things do, that are coming back. Well, thank you for being part of this weekend and uh, and and my podcast. To, I know we started with veterans, and that's kind of where the heart was, but I'm glad we expanded to this because it's all relevant, isn't it, Steve? The way we treat veterans, the way we treat people. Um, we honor the troops by treating each other well also, right? A- absolutely. I mean, it, you couldn't have said it better. I mean, we are asking so much of our veterans to maintain who we are as a people and a country and our values. And so how we, as the civilians, treat our veterans who defend us and defend what we stand for and let us have the opportunity to actually be able to have a podcast like this and be able to walk down the street freely um, all goes together. So um, well, glad to be a part of it. And we'll be uh, listening to you tomorrow at 10 a.m. And uh, looking forward to it, Steve Ebert of Cassidy and Cassidy LLP. And, yeah, let's let's keep tabs on what's going on in the city because I do feel a comeback. I just want to see it on, on the real estate front as well. And, you, and you're the eagle eye, if you will. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. Talk to you soon, Alex. Talk to you soon. I'm Alex Garrett, where we're always adapting. And, again, this weekend, support the troops. And we'll have uh, some more conversations about the troops as we move along here on Alex Garrett Podcasting this weekend. That was great. And I-